sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. I'm joined today by Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Factotum, Jay Carson. Hey, Jay. Good morning, Mike. How you doing? I'm, I'm doing, like, as, as well as, um, gosh, I, I keep thinking I'm going to have something really clever, but uh, as, as well as uh, Trump at the Supreme Court, I think. Yeah, uh, well, well, there you go. That's, that, that's not a bad one, which, we'll, which we will get to in just a minute here. But before we do that, uh, I wanted to just briefly thank the folks at Total Recorder for recently helping us out with uh, an audio recording issue we've been having. Um, I've been using Total Recorder to record my end of our Politics Guys episodes for, you know, a while now, and it's it's just way better than anything else I've tried. And this isn't an ad or anything. It's just something I wanted to mention, given, you know, how uh, really impressed I've been by both their recording software and their great customer service. And so if you have to record something, you know, and you're not satisfied with the options available to you, just check them out at TotalRecorder.com. And we'd also like to thank our newest supporters this week. Uh, we have Wade, uh, Heather, and Jennifer, who are all new sustaining monthly supporters on Patreon, and Nathan, who is a monthly sustaining uh, supporter on PayPal. So thank you all very much. It means thank you. Yeah, it means it means a lot to us. It is literally what keeps the show going. And of course. When you become a monthly sustaining supporter of the show through Patreon, you get more than just us saying thank you, which is, you know, nice. But all supporters at any level get access to our weekly bonus show. And there are also a bunch of other things we've put together for supporters at various levels. And to check it all out, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can go to politicsguys.com slash support. Okay, and with that, let's get to the news from this week. A lot of stuff going on this week, Jay, but... I thought maybe the best place to start would be with uh, a late-breaking story. On, on right. Friday, you mentioned it you know, in the, in the intro there. On Friday, the Supreme Court lifted a lower court's injunction that prevented the Trump administration from moving forward with using Defense Department funds for border wall construction. Now, the ruling was along ideological lines, with the court's five conservative justices voting to lift the injunction and the four liberals on the court supporting keeping the injunction in place. In the very brief opinion, the majority focused not actually on the merits of the case, but instead on the standing, or I guess lack thereof in their view, uh, of the parties that were bringing suit. And that would be the ACLU on behalf of the Sierra Club and the Southern Border Communities Coalition. So, Jay, I know this was kind of a, a late-breaking thing, but what's your, what's your initial take on this ruling? Uh, my initial take is that the the court gets it right. Um, there was sort of in, in the dissent, sort of uh, some halfway dissents, right? Uh, but but I think it does come down to either that you have standing or you don't. And the, the Sierra Club had based its claim of standing on the idea that you know the Sierra Club it's about environmental preservation and uh, sort of like the recreational loss that would, would happen there because it would be harder for people to hike and take pictures and, and, you know, would mess up the scenery type thing, uh, down at the border. And, and, uh, I think the court was, said, look, that's not, 
that's not the type of, of interest uh, that can give you um, standing um, to sue on, on something like this. So um, I, I think the court probably got it right. The, the amount of, of, of money we're talking about, of course, is still, I, th- I think it's what, $3.2 billion? Well, yeah, the, the total is three point two, but the amount at the amount that's the focus of this particular lawsuit, and of course there are a bunch of them, is yeah. two point five billion of Defense Department funds. Right. So I mean, um, yeah. But either way, in 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 Washington terms and wall yeah. building terms, it's it's a rounding error. Um, I, I should say that it's more than a rounding error, but um, it's it's not it's not the it's a good know, amount of wall. Not, it, it's not going to, yeah, but it's not going to. This is not going to fund a border to border. You know, fifty no. foot, terrific, luxurious wall. Sure, uh, <laughs> it's more or less to make repairs uh, and put up that sort of sort of semi wall fencing type type stuff that they've got. So right, right. Well, you know, I guess I see what you're saying, and I think it's I tend to side with the uh, with the four dissenters on this, saying I think it's less the standing issue is at least a little more up in the air and you may you may end up being right I, I think it's maybe a closer call than you would think but it seems to me that the logic of well, it's, it's a 5-4 core I'll call it well, yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, so, but, but, but I mean the, the, the logic of having a of issuing an injunction in the first case is to say is in instances and you you're the expert here at least more so than I am is that when I you am, think yeah. that there is a reasonable probability that uh, one side may prevail, and if going forward may cause some sort of irreparable damage, then right. that's kind of the grounds for issuing some sort of an injunction. Is that is that more or less? You know, how do I have that right? That's, you you hit it. You got it pretty yeah pretty pretty close. Um, it is that you you would need to show a likelihood of success on the merits. Um, that that likelihood can kind of vary a little bit depending. It's it's a little bit of a shifting thing, and you have to show that there's some sort of irreparable harm. And irreparable right. harm in the law means uh, a harm that can't be made up for in money later on. Right. Um. So it's if it's one of these, you can get your money back or or get something paid back, whatever. Then it's it's not irreparable harm. Um. So I, I think that's that's the other question. We go to the, the merits. What's the the irreparable harm um, is that Trump misspent uh, some Defense Department funds. Well, you know, you can always claw those back. Um, so, I mean, well, I think see, that's the... But, but I would argue, I would argue the other way. I would say that, well, there are two types of harm. Number one is that those funds that are already spent, I mean, you can't really claw them back in the sense that that money has been spent appropriated, right. on wall right. construction. And not only that, but once the wall is up, it's up and the environmental damage that's done has been done. And it's not like this wall is going to be ripped down once it's up. And even if it is, that damage is still done. And so, well, and again, this is, other, go ahead. Sorry. I've got, I was, no, cause I was going to jump, I was actually jumping in to agree with you. Oh, a well, bit. I'll shut up then. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, because the other one of the other uh, uh, things, the other um, um, instances of irreparable harm, as you can claim, is if there is a constitutional abuse, right? right? That if if someone is going to violate the constitution or exceed their authority or something, uh, that's something that that you can't fix with with money necessarily. Um, but then the question is that the uh, that the plaintiffs in this case have that authority, yeah, um, to 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 do that so yeah and I, I mean it's uh it's it's not a clear cut 
sort of thing, certainly. But and of course, there are these two issues here, the, the one, the standing issue, and then the actual, you know, looking at it on the merits. And, and it seems to me that's not necessarily all that clear either. I would say that the action is at best, uh, I'll call it dubious, because it seems to me this is an instance of going around Congress to reappropriate funds for something, well, that the administration couldn't get through the legislative process. But but that being said, it still might be constitutionally okay because of Congress, you know, delegating emergency authority to the president, which, and really to me, Jay, that's the larger issue. Uh, And that's the issue of too much executive power because in, in large part, because Congress isn't doing its job. Yeah. But and that's I, but that's not a legal question. That's a political no, right. question. Yeah, exactly. I, think, I think we agree on that. But yeah, yeah. Um, I I suppose there there may be a legal argument to say that it is uh, improper delegation. Um, yeah. But I I think that's probably going to fail because I you know usually you've got the yes Congress can, Congress can't delegate its powers to other agencies or or other actors. Um, but there are sort of recognized exceptions for emergency yeah. type declarations and so forth. So uh, and, I, I think, you know, yeah, you'd have that argument, but I, I think I think you'd lose it on the merits. And that's the other thing that's interesting is that's exactly what's going to happen now that the the stay is is lifted. What happens is it goes back to the lower court and, and it can still proceed on the merits. Right. Uh, so. And in the end, I, I agree with you. And, you know, we've talked about this issue, this larger issue in a variety of ways, and this idea that essentially that there are things that are legally and constitutionally okay that aren't necessarily okay in sort of a, a larger sense you know, or, or in a different right. sense. And I think this is one of these instances is that, you know, that in the end, I think that President Trump does, in fact, have the legal constitutional authority to do this. Which is not to say I agree with it, but I'm not going to say he can't do it just because I don't like what he's doing. And I think that's an important distinction. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's good. Yeah. Well, I I knew I knew you'd kind of like that. So anyway, (laughs) let's move on to the story that sort of dominated the news cycle this week. And of course, that is uh, former special counsel Robert Mueller testified before the House Judiciary and Intelligence Committees about his investigation and report on Russian influence in the 2016 election, allegations of collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign, and potential obstruction of justice by the Trump campaign and administration, I guess. Now, Democrats had hoped to use the testimony to sort of bring to life the contents of Mueller's report. Pretty clearly, that was an effort that fell flat and in no small part due to Mueller's uh, terse and often halting and confused answers to many questions. Now, Republicans saw this, at least a lot of Republicans saw this testimony as an opportunity to both discredit Mueller and his investigation as uh, essentially a politically motivated, I'll use the term, witch hunt. So, Jay, what did you make of Mueller's testimony? Riveting. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, look, and I I didn't watch the the whole, you know, five hours uh, of it, um, obviously. Sure. Uh, But but I mean, I guess it comes back to, um, you know, what what did you expect him to do? I think I think you can say, well, the the performance aspect of it could have been better. Right. Um, But as far as the content, you were sort of left with. You know, it, it's sort of like if if you've got you know if someone has written a a um, uh, a very bad play, uh, and you're going to stage that play, um, you could have some really good actors 
you know, come in and, and, and perform the play, uh, but it could still suck. Um, likewise, you could have, uh, you know, you're going to perform Shakespeare, but the actors are not so good. Um, and, and that's not going to come off. And, and here they were, they were really sort of stuck with a, a script, right? I mean, Mueller said, look, my testimony's in the report and it's, it says what it says. Um, and it's sort of, uh, if you expect him to come and, and, you know, read the lines differently, uh, obviously he, he would open himself up and uh, to the thing of, well, look, if it was this important, you know, I mean, it's, it's not like he was going to come out and say, and you know what? Trump colluded with the Russians. Yeah. You know what I mean? The yeah. sort of the, the, there was not going to be that aha moment. I mean, the best that I think the Democrats could hope for is he would sort of read the report with, with more feeling. Um, yep. And again, which is which is a weird thing. And the other piece that the Democrats, I think, were looking at is just to have a hook, right? To hang this on, uh, to say, "Aha, this is, uh, you know, this is so terrible." Or, or I mean, the idea that uh, Mueller may make uh, might have said something to the effect of, uh, "Look, there wasn't a crime, but boy, this looks really bad. It's really, uh, you know, terrible. Trump's a horrible person," and just enough of of that to sort of to to peg a hook on to say, oh, look, we need to investigate further. But it, it just didn't, it just didn't happen. Yeah. And um, to uh, me, it was, it's... to me, it was sort of a, a, a Hail Mary type of thing because, yeah. I mean, of course it was political theater and even a lot of Democrats said, hey, exactly what you said. This was a way to try to bring to life the testimony for the people who didn't read the report. And I thought it was a, I thought it was a very solid, clear, rigorous uh, report. But of course, most people aren't going to read that. And, and but but I think the the fundamental idea behind this that people would somehow hear would would watch these you know, watch this testimony, hear Mueller, and then say, "Oh, I've been so wrong," or "I was on the fence." And I mean, that to me suggests that so many of these people who are focused on this, both Republicans and Democrats, honestly, in Congress, are living in a bizarre little bubble where of course to that that part of Washington DC inside the beltway and the very politically engaged this is a big deal but i think it's easy for us to forget how much not of a this big of a deal it is to a lot of americans and pretty much anyone who's going to care enough to focus on this on on the the hearings the testimony are people who've already had their minds made up. So I, yeah. I felt it was kind of pointless. And again, I think maybe Democrats were hoping. Well, who knows? He could say something. There could be a soundbite out of this. And what do we have to lose? Because everyone already yeah, has it, their it, mind it, made up. Yeah. Well, you know, what, do you, so, what, what do you have? What you have to lose is is the uh, um, <clears throat> sort of the the momentum and the the sort of the sense that you're you're beating a dead horse. Um, so from what I, what I've read, I, in newspaper, people were saying they have sources from inside the democratic caucus saying that the following day, uh, Nadler proposed, uh, that, uh, they move forward with impeachment because like, you know, Hey, this went really well. Uh, and that was sort of shot down by the speaker. Um, but I've, I've, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I, I think, uh, with impeachment, I, I think the launch sequence has started. Right. And almost now Nadler's almost in a position where if he doesn't keep moving, it is you just keep looking silly. Well, you're uh, I have said before, I, I disagree with you on that. It's not going to happen. Not only will there not be impeachment, there won't even be a formal impeachment inquiry. 
And, and I'm, I'm on record as saying that multiple times, and you're on record as saying the other, and we will, yeah. we will see what is, what is what there. But, you know, there's, the, there's this other part uh, of the issue as well. And I really wish that, this is, this is me dreaming, obviously, that, that both Democrats and Republicans had focused more on the Russian interference part of things. And, you know, that was the testimony sure. where Mueller was much more clear and certain and all that. And I really think it's more important in the sense that it transcends Trump and in a better world, it should transcend partisan politics. And I mean, Mueller was very clear. Everyone should agree. We don't want Russians messing with our elections. Yeah. And then, you know, you have, you have some Republicans, uh, even, you know, some members of Congress, you know, questioning Mueller and in their zeal to discredit him talking about, you know, uh, uh, talking about how, well, this wasn't a big, that big of a deal with the Russians. And well, you know, this is a whole, this whole thing was a witch hunt. And I think they should have made much more of an effort to separate the Trump part of it from the Russians part of it. Because if we can't all agree that there's strong evidence that the Russians clearly interfered in our elections. And it doesn't matter for what reason, just the fact that they did that should have everyone up in arms, I think. And so I'm, I'm deeply disappointed uh, in in both sides, but particularly the Republicans who some who seem for partisan reasons to be actually trying to discount the extent of Russian interference to help Donald Trump. Well, I think, I think the, the, the impulse to discount the, the Russian interference, and again, it's, I, call it attempted dis, uh, uh, interference because, as I think Mueller said, and, and there was no evidence that what the Russians did actually changed votes, changed anybody's mind. Um, so it wasn't attempted it, interference. It was, uh, it, was, it was interference, but it didn't necessarily have the effect that they wanted, is what you're saying. Just to be well, if you if you right if you try to if you try to shoot somebody and miss, it's attempted murder. Right. So this you still pulled to the trigger, but sure, it, you didn't. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So b- so I'm 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 you know trying to steer away from the here, here's the thing uh, my my test would be uh, had the Russians done none of this would it have changed the outcome of the election? No, Trump still would have would have won. I suspect. Um, especially if you look at, you know, they're going into the Facebook ads and stuff. I mean, the, the Clinton campaign, I imagine spent more on vegan donuts, uh, than the entire, you know, <laughs> Russian Facebook budget. But, um, the, the sense I, I think though, but if, if this had only been about that Russian interference, would, would Mueller have been there testifying? Well, no. Uh, and the reason is no. It's it's that they're it's about the president. It's about impeachment. And I think Republicans often look at this and say, um, you know, look, would if if Hillary Clinton had been elected, would we be having investigations into Russian interference in the election? We should. And that's kind of the thought, I mean, thought experiment. We should. That's we my should. point. Yeah. I mean, you know, but, we, but, you know, of course, we can't prove the negative. But I mean, either right. way. This, to me, seems to be the one thing that we should be able to get at least. And, and and to be fair, I mean, I'm kind of calling out some of the Republicans who really tried to discount this. But there have been a number of Republicans who said this is a this is a serious issue and we do need to worry about it. And there has been, you know, a certain amount of bipartisan consensus. And from all accounts, it seems that steps have been taken so that in 2020 and even in 2018, the system is more secure than it was in 2016. And that's, of course, a good thing. Yeah, and I, I'm going to add one other other piece that the Republicans wanted to do, and they I think they were were very successful in this. And if you want to talk about Russian interference, um, and again, you may say I'm wandering off into the conspiratorial swamplands, uh, but but I don't think so. I mean, it, it, the question is, did did he look at the dossier 
uh, the origins of the dossier that started this uh, this whole inquiry into whether there was collusion. And Mueller said, no, he didn't. That was outside of the purview of, of his investigation. Uh, and that's really the only answer the Republicans needed. It's, did you look at that? No. Um, because I think there's, there's going to, other people are going to be looking at it. Uh, and it, it very well may be that, look, well, they had a dossier that was sourced from Russian sources. Um, so if you're going to look at, at one aspect uh, of, of Russian interference, um, this, that would be the much, much bigger one, right? If that is really the case. Now, we don't know that yet. There's still investigations ongoing. I, I, would... I think that was the other, the other point that, that the Republicans were trying to make of, of, look, you want to talk about interference. Did you look at this, the potential that this entire dossier was a, a Russian plant? Sure. And the dossier is certainly part of it, but it, it's, it's interesting to me, not interesting to me. It, it's totally understandable to me why, why the Republicans would be focusing on this particular one piece of a much larger puzzle with just ferocious intensity, essentially, because uh, that's well, it's, the part it's not that- just one piece. It, it is. It was the the, you know, what began this this whole investigation. Right. Sure. It, it, it is. I'm not saying it's an unimportant piece, but I'm but the idea that this is the, the sole focus and to listen to much of the conservative media, you would think that this is the whole thing. And I think it it. it what it does is it leads to this sort of conspiracy thinking and let's focus on, let's focus on, and, and, you know, again, I, I've said before that we should absolutely be concerned if there was any sort of a attempt by uh, American intelligence officials to discredit the uh, a presidential candidate. Absolutely. There are investigations going on and, you know, we're, we're awaiting the results of those investigations, but, but this whole thing of just, Focusing on well, let's let's try to discredit Robert Mueller and the investigation. When when this is a guy who remember this is a, a Republican guy who has a, right. a record of decades of integrity and of being just incredibly above board and was you know a picked by Republicans to do this and all of a sudden he comes out with some with some findings that make the president look bad. And now this is a this is a disgraceful guy who is just who is just awful and is out to out to get the president. And to me, that is just that is just ludicrous. See, I think I think you're reading. I think you're maybe just reading body language or or questions differently than than I did. Sure, I wouldn't doubt it. Right. I mean, I I didn't I didn't see that much hostility towards Mueller personally. Wow. Um, okay. I I I would have interpreted it more as hostility towards. Um, sort of the process to the report, sort of the, the incompleteness of the, you know, the, look, if, if you're looking at uh, uh, Russian interference, why didn't you look at these questions? And his, his answer was simply, look, that was beyond my scope, beyond my mandate. And, and I think that's, you know, that, that may be the correct answer. Um, but, but they, they make the point and they raise the point uh, that it, it should have been included. Um, and again, I, I'm going back to if there wasn't the dossier, if there wasn't these these uh, outlandish claims, and, and again, this is, if true, would have been the biggest intelligence spy story in the history of the country, right? Um, uh, and and you know, would would we have had a special counsel appointed? Would we have had a special counsel appointed to investigate? Uh, Russian interference uh, through through what they did, right? 
um, I don't think we would have. Yeah, but, but so I, mean, I, I think. But but on that point of, I mean, on that point that that you mentioned about re- Republicans not really attacking Mueller. I mean, you have you have uh, Tom McClintock saying that Mueller desperately tried and failed to make a legal case against the president and made a political case instead. Uh, you have. Well, I guess uh, he's attacking him. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, you have Republicans calling him fundamentally unfair, throwing a bunch of stuff up against the wall to see what would stick. That's Ken Buck. Uh, that he managed to violate every principle, every principle. That's John Ratcliffe. Uh, he wrote a one-sided attack on the president. That's, that's my principles. own representative, Steve Shabbat, uh, had an amazing, an amazing double standard. That's Re- Representative Jim Jordan. I mean, the well, list think, goes I on that, and on. No, I think that's a, I think that's a, 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 a strong, a, a, a legit criticism, the double standard. I think that's kind of what they're getting at, but um, no, look, I, I, I hear you. It's, it's, uh, there was sort of an attack, the messenger, I suppose. Maybe I don't see it as, as much that way just because of the, the biases sure. we, we bring to this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it, it always quite honestly, you- if, if I'm, if, if I'm uh, a Republican congressman, uh, you know, my, my one, you know, one or only, you know, questions would be, look, you had, you had some conclusions here, Mr. Mueller. Uh, you concluded that there was no evidence of collusion, correct? Correct. Thank you very much. I mean, you know what I mean? So I, I, I think that, that, uh, he, that the report ought to be celebrated. It ought to be like, you know, Trump shouting no collusion. Um, uh, that that's the, that's the, probably the better way to handle it politically, but, but regardless, um, Although, as we yeah. talked about before, collusion isn't even a thing, a term. It's right. just this made-up sort of thing. But uh, but it sounds good in a tweet, and that's really the important right. thing. It sounds apparently. like something you don't want to do. Yeah, no, you definitely you shouldn't be doing. don't want to. Uh, but, you know, it reminds me of that old adage uh, back in the day. We used to say that politics stops at the water's edge. Um, pretty clearly, that's not the case anymore. And, you know, Jay, I, I wonder if maybe that's because back when we used to say that sort of thing and mean it, it was because we felt that the enormity of the, at that point, Soviet or communist threat was so much greater. And now we right. sort of feel like, well, the Russians are a problem, but it's not like we're, we're in that kind of atmosphere of, of the you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, where we're thinking there's nuclear Armageddon in just, you know, you know right around the corner, essentially. And so I yeah. wonder if that plays into it as well. A little, a little bit. I, I would say I, I'd be a little more cynical and say I don't know that we ever really meant that, right? I mean, you can look back to you know was you know Vietnam. Uh, you can look back to like the nuclear freeze movement sure. and, and those sorts of things, um, where where there were sort of uh, obvious partisan breaks on on yeah. for, foreign policy. Um, but I think I think but typically. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, though, more, at least a perception of a more extreme threat tends to unify a lot more. And right now, while while Russia, we feel like Russia is a threat, it's sort of harder to wrap our heads around sort of a, a cyber threat from a almost kind of developing country, formerly great, that just happens to have a bunch of nukes. But it doesn't feel, and certainly, you know, we're both old enough to remember this, Russia doesn't feel nearly as threatening as it did uh, in in the 1980s and, and even China, which is our main, I would argue, strategic, you know, threat now, doesn't feel threatening in the same way that you know the Soviet communism felt. And that right. makes well, no, a difference. exactly. And if if you were to ask me or most people on the street of of uh, you know how do you feel about a, a Soviet uh, Soviet uh, <laughs> Russian? Um, <laughs> see, there it goes. Back yeah. in the day, man. Um, Wolverines. Yeah. Uh, tell me if you get that reference. Um, 
But, but I mean, if, if which would you prefer, a, a Russian Facebook attack or a Russian nuclear attack? Yeah. And most people would say, well, the Facebook things, that's, that's no good. But uh, given the choice... Uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's their Russians are seeing it, it's it's seen as annoyance. And there was an yeah. interesting piece. This is maybe a little off topic, but I think it's something interesting to raise anyway. Uh, in the New York Times uh, last week about Russian hacking and the Russians hacking into electoral systems, and it determined what they what they had done. They, you know, because of the way our systems are set up, they would not have been able to change any actual votes because right. the votes are still recorded on paper. Uh, what they could have done would would be like mess with registration information, um, which you know had they done that it could have been a, a real headache on election day. Um, if they had done it, but but to do it like meaningfully, you'd have to do it on a, a big scale. And if you did it on a big scale, it would necessarily show your hand that it's the Russians doing this. Sure. Uh, you know what I mean. So it's one of those sort of. Uh, if if everyone's registration in whatever county is canceled all of a sudden, then okay, you know somebody must have hacked your system, and this is not legit. Uh, there again, if they also just like change a couple of voters' addresses, um, and they have to fill up provisional ballots, it's not going to change. It's not going to make a difference. This is why, um, though. I mean, there are still some states or parts of some states where there isn't a paper trail anymore, and uh, that's that's obviously, I think, a pretty important concern. That has been addressed to a certain extent, but not as much as it could be. I think we should go to all paper right. ballots in all uh, in all states and all parts of states. We're not we're not there yet, certainly. And and I know you're not I'm, saying I'm with you there. Yeah, and you're not trying to minimize this. I, I, you make well, yeah, I am. You, well, okay, I, I would I, I would disagree. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll get it. If we're if we're talking if we're talking uh, you know nuclear attack. Um, sure, <laughs> it's not as bad as a nuclear, nuclear attack. attack, but but in a way. I'm not going to say in a way it's worse, but in a way it's it's more insidious because the sort of attacks that don't feel like anything until all of a sudden we find that, you know, uh, confidence in democracy and the results of elections has been undermined. That's that in a way can be maybe not worse, but even more troublesome <laughs> in a certain way, because then all of a sudden it's like, well, what happened? And and we're at this this point where our institutions are crumbling and maybe the Russians found a much better sitting strategy. Sitting in a bunker with your, with your shotgun fending off the other survivors saying, well, at least our electoral system's still oh, yeah, intact. Yeah, yeah, there's that. That, 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 um, that's right, the electoral system. They didn't so sure, yeah. <laughs> I, I hear what you're saying. Anyway, um, so why don't we, why don't we move on uh, to actually a surprisingly, uh, for most people would say, a surprisingly positive piece of news. Uh, Negotiations between Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin resulted this week in a bipartisan budget and debt ceiling agreement. Now, the agreement, which was praised by President Trump and passed in the House on a 184, sorry, 284 to 149 vote, will suspend the debt ceiling until July 31st, 2021, and increase total discretionary spending from $1.32 trillion this fiscal year to $1.37 trillion in fiscal year 2020, and then $1.375 trillion in 2021. Now, this represents essentially the final stake in the heart of the Budget Control Act of 2011, which, well, technically set domestic and military spending caps, but in reality, it was used as kind of a mechanism to negotiate yearly budget increases with Democrats agreeing to more defense spending in return for Republicans agreeing to more domestic spending. 
Now, even with this agreement, Congress will still need to pass yearly budget legislation, but the agreement on overall spending levels should make that a much less um, fraught process than it's been in recent years. And and the people most upset with this agreement were conservative Republicans. They pointed out they voted against it. Republicans voted against it, almost two thirds of Republicans voting against it in the House. And the main argument here was that you have these increases in spending by nearly a third of a trillion dollars without doing anything to actually reduce the increased deficit and national debt. So, Jay, what did you think about this agreement? Well, uh, I'm, I'm you you uh, phrased it as kind of positive. I see it very much the other way. Okay. Um, I think I think you sort of you hit the nail on the head where you said like uh, Democrats could agree to more spending on defense and Republicans could agree to more domestic spending. Uh, the point is everybody's agreeing to more spending. Um, and and if you are a a conservative fiscal Republican, which uh, Trump is not. Um, this is this is a, a disappointment yep. um, uh, for for you know conservative budget hawks and it'd be people who look back to say oh boy I wish we had that the old style conservatism back right that wasn't all about social issues or immigration or uh, or, or or you know tweeting or just sort of the the, the old old school um, green eye shade uh, type uh, type conservatism um, well this was it and you, you sort of lost it and so I. I, I'm I'm very much disappointed. I know a lot of others on the right uh, are also. Now, you know, I think you can make the argument that uh, there's a strategic point, and you know, there are so many fronts open right now uh, that maybe Trump didn't need to have another uh, another front or another uh, budget showdown because that's that's the way these things have worked. The only way. Uh, that Republicans have ever gotten any sort of meaningful uh, spending cuts have been through this this brinkmanship, uh, which is, is not good for the markets, uh, is not good for, um, I think, the national psyche, I guess. Um, so there is this sense of a relief of, look, there's we're not going to have this drama, right? We're not going to have approaching the, the fiscal cliff type thing. Um, uh, but but at the same time, you know, so much of, of the savings that we we did get. I mean, and, and this is back in the Obama era, who who touted these savings was because of uh, the budget act of, of of 2011, which had that the sequester um, in it, uh, and and forced these some of these spending cuts. So, um, not even spending cuts, but except, spending yeah, spending, it, it, spending limits. Except, except it, again, yeah. there was a way around. Exactly, it. Yeah. exactly, yeah. and that, that's the problem because, of course, current Congresses can't bind future Congresses to anything because future Congresses can just vote to you know uh, undo what what they done but, but but still there was there was a we we I'd call it like a political speed bump still yeah uh, right? yeah okay sure yeah it's it's sort of it's yeah. sort of like uh the difference between having the money in your savings account where you actually have to go withdraw it and then spend it as opposed to your checking yeah. account where you can just spend it yeah. there's there's that little bit of like yeah um yep. so that's true that's true so and- so I, I would i would say that you know yeah fiscal conservatives lost this round now the the rationale that's that's come out of the the Trump administration was sort of a you know we're going to pick our battles, um, and that this this seemed to be a battle they didn't want to take on right now, uh, but you know and maybe the the af- after twenty twenty. Um, uh, he'd have more flexibility, yeah. so to speak. But, but that's what they um, always say, right? I mean, it's a yeah. sure once well, exactly, yeah. You know. and, and, it, and that's that's sort of the the continual Republican lament of there's always like. All right, look, we'll give a little on uh, on tax increases or spending increases here, 
but we're going to get the we're going to get some cuts, you know, next year. Um, yeah. Next time around. And it just it just never seems to happen. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you heard about this, but I I, I am not a fan for a lot of reasons of, of Tom Massey, who's a representative from Kentucky. Uh, but he actually forced a vote after it was passed. This bill, he forced a vote on changing the title of the bill, which is the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2019, which is a nice kind of sounding thing. Right. Sure. He, he forced a vote on changing it to a bill to kick the can down the road and for other purposes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. They got 47 votes, but uh, yeah. not, not, not quite enough. But, you know, look, that kind of thing should be sort of. But I mean, it gets at what you were saying. In fact, the Wall Street Journal in a more high handed way or a more uh, elevated way, you know, talked about the the bipartisan spending party. And of course, they're yeah. absolutely right on that. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out about this, there have been some, there's been some talk, especially on the left, about how this is a repudiation of President Trump by his own party, especially in the House. And I would say, it's not, the other way around. well, not really so much, because even though two thirds of the Republicans voted against this and Donald Trump wanted it, it's important to remember that, you know, the leadership knew the votes were there. And so- sure. Many of those Republicans could afford to vote against it, and this is one of these things that it's it's a free it's what the, it's what they call a free vote for yeah, the Republicans exactly. Yeah. And so I think a lot of a lot of folks don't necessarily appreciate that voting is often as much about strategy as it is about policy preferences. And so yeah. I wouldn't read that much into this, but uh, that's one thing I wanted to point. Out. Another there, there would be ab- there would be absolutely no upside for a House Republican. Yeah. I shouldn't say that because I'm sure there are some who have, who have voted for it. Uh, but but the very limited upside for most House Republicans uh, to vote for this bill. Yeah, exactly. Because it was going to, it's going to pass anyway uh, over your objections. And at this way, this time you have you have the opportunity to say, hey, I'm sticking to principle. I may lose, uh, but I'm still sticking to the uh, the low. Uh, uh, you know, yep. budget cutting principles that that I campaigned on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what, and I'm protecting my I'm, I'm protecting myself against potential primary exactly, challenges from the right. Exactly. You know, uh, one part of this we didn't mention is there was sort of a side agreement where Democrats agreed to keep policy writers out of a budget legislation. Uh, but that I think, and there were some on the left who were upset about that. But honestly. The way I read it, I don't even know that that's enforceable. So I, I just think that was that sort of a, a throwaway sort of thing. Not much of a concession, really, at all. It's one of those things where everyone gets something, and the only loser is future generations, basically. And you know, to that point, I wanted to say I am not necessarily against all deficit spending. You know, you can make a, right. you can make a case that, for instance, uh, you know, the United States. We be- made that case in the eighties. Well. Well, yeah, I mean, you can take it too far, obviously, but but the U.S. can borrow at lower rates than anyone else for a lot of reasons. And as long as if you can borrow at, say, one percent and you can invest it in things that net you two, three, four percent, you'd be crazy not to do that sort right. of thing. Right. Uh, but right. the problem is, is if you borrow at one percent and you invest in things that don't get you less than one percent, then you right. get deeper into the hole. So you can't just lump all deficit spending in, you know, together. But but that being said, we clearly are not doing enough of that kind of investment spending. We take a look, the debt, the national debt was $19 trillion. It's hard even to say that when Donald Trump took yeah. office, it's $22 trillion now. This year alone, we're paying out $350 billion in interest on the debt. 
And of course, from the left, one of the issues that we have is, oh, there was a $1.5 trillion tax cut in 2017. And, you know, the administration said it'll pay for itself. Well, Congress's Joint Committee on Taxation said, no, it's going to increase the debt by a trillion dollars over 10 years. The Tax Foundation said, no, only half a trillion. Yeah, yeah. But, and even then, Remember that in that tax agreement, individual tax cuts were scheduled to expire, are scheduled to expire in 2025. And that was really kind of a gimmick. Everyone expects Congress to make those permanent. And if they're made permanent, it's going to cost $2.3 trillion. So, I mean, the the basic idea seems to be, hey, let's cut taxes and raise spending. And that's only going to work for so long. Right. No, I, I agree with you on the, the general principle of that, but also consider there are other factors that go into tax policy and, and particularly, and this is something we agreed on back in the day, on um, the corporate tax reforms. Yeah. Uh, in that, in that would, would help companies, uh, encourage companies to stay in, in, in the United States, invest more in the United States, uh, as opposed to, you know, being lured away to places like Ireland and, and you know, so many other places in the developed world where, where they had much lower tax rates. So I think there is something there. And, and I think in, in that sense, there is that investment uh, that you can, you can get. And something else, another reason Republicans often are, are more in favor of spending on things like infrastructure is because there is more of a, a measurable uh, investment bump, a, a tangible asset that you get at the end of the day. Um, as opposed to just, you know, bigger government operations, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, in principle, we, we, we would tend to agree. The other, the other thing I, I think about in terms of deficits and debts uh, is you have to balance it to, against what your GDP is. Um, so, uh, obviously, if, if, if you've got uh, the, what's, it's not so sure, much yeah. important it's, you know, it's what you not, owe, yeah. it's, it's how, what you owe compared to what you make. Yeah. And we're getting to the point, though, where we're at, you know, not quite, but we're at like World War II uh, uh, levels. Yeah. And that's, you know, well, when you're fighting a you know, world war against the Nazis and so forth, that you understand you want to spend, spend some money. But here, this is, I think, just an incredible amount of fiscal irresponsibility. We've got no Nazis. So, so you're so you're so you're for the so you're, you're OK with the, the spending increase or not now? I, I am. Well, I am OK. <laughs> no, I, to be clear. I am okay. In fact, I think we need to spend a lot more, but I also think okay. we need to tax a lot more in a different way than what we're doing it now. Right. I've been for a long time in this. You are you are the party of high spending and high taxes. I am. I am. In fact, I would like All to right. see. I would like to see us move to much more of a European style system, which you know maybe not quite to well not quite to that level, but certainly I would like to see. I've been a, a fan of a value added tax for a long time, which I think would be simpler and could eliminate a lot of other taxes. And there are actually plenty of people on the right who, in the past, had championed that idea as well. Yeah, well, so we, we you're moved not to value-added of... tax. The next thing, the next thing you know, we've got uh, soccer in the metric system. So. Oh my God, we can't have it. <laughs> anyway, um, let's move on. Uh, what do you say? Uh, this week, the Federal Trade Commission announced its biggest ever fine. Facebook's going to pay a $5 billion penalty and also submit to a number of oversight and regulatory provisions as part of right. a settlement agreement with the FTC. And this, there of course, you go. We just made five billion bucks back. Well, there you go. Rounding <laughs> error, right? Anyway, now this stems from a lengthy investigation of Facebook's alleged noncompliance with an FTC settlement reached in 2012. Now, key provisions of the settlement, in addition to the fine, 
include a third party, a third party privacy assessor who's going to report to the FCC or FTC, sorry, a new privacy monitoring group appointed by Facebook's board of directors, a requirement that Facebook conduct privacy reviews for new products on any of its platforms, new compliance officers, and acceptance of specific rules to further safeguard user privacy, like, for instance, requiring users to opt in as opposed to opting out of facial recognition. Now, the vote on the FTC to accept the settlement was along party lines. The three Republican-appointed commissioners voted for the agreement, seeing it essentially as a better option than a long legal battle with an uncertain outcome. The two Democratic-appointed commissioners opposed the settlement because they felt it wasn't a sufficient penalty or a sufficient check on Facebook's uh, activities. Now, this was, Again, that's kind of the the the, the free vote kind of thing, yeah, right? Well, Get, well I see yeah. what you're saying, yeah. And and of course, this is combined with uh, the Department of Justice this week announcing a new wide-ranging antitrust investigation of big tech. Now, Facebook wasn't mentioned by name as a target, but the statement on the investigation referred to market-leading online platforms. And so, obviously, that's going to include Facebook. Right. But the weird thing here, not weird, I totally understandable, actually, is you could argue that it's actually been a good week for Facebook. They announced quarterly earnings of $16.9 billion. That's up 28% from a year ago, and it actually beat market estimates. And in addition, while you know, the company's stock dipped a little bit this week, it's up 56% since the beginning of the year. And so it seems like despite all this scrutiny, it's not really having much of an effect on the bottom line here. So... Jay, what do you think just in general about this agreement? Would you agree with this? Do you think the settlement was a good thing? um, From a lot of times, a settlement uh, is a good thing just because it brings certainty. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's, I think, something that, look, okay, we're paying $5 billion, but okay, we know we're paying $5 billion and you can budget for it and work around it. And it's much better than having that uncertainty of, of what might hit you. Right. And in fact, they, uh, and they did that. I think the, they set aside two billion of it last year and three billion yeah. of it this year in in preparation. They realized there was going to be some sort of a uh, some sort of a settlement. I think the markets kind of built that in too. Right, and, and and it's also just the idea of if you get some control over your own destiny. Uh, there's also probably some uh, a sense of relief of look, this is you know we can we can work with uh, these regulators. Um, so I, no, I, 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 or we can work no, these no, regulators. Think, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think that's, no, I think that's, I think that's, uh, you know, because that, that's in the real world. That's the way it it tends to work, right? I mean, it's not as if it's 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 uh, not all adversarial. I mean, it is adversarial, but there's also the sense of uh, you know, companies ought to be able to negotiate and 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 work. You know, bring the kind of the market knowledge of here's what works, here's what doesn't. Um, uh, and so I, I think, you know, also it sort of maybe puts them out in front of, um, uh, you know, these issues, um, the Facebook's bigger problem had, had been Europe, right. Uh, yep. as far as getting hit with fines and, uh, the European privacy standards are a lot more onerous, uh, and the penalties a lot higher than, than what they are here. Um, so again, it, there may be a sense of relief of, okay, we got, we've got this deal. We know what we're working with. It's not going to be like Europe again. Yeah. Um, so I, I can see all those kind of factors playing into that's going to buoy the stock and, and, uh, you know, just other general economic conditions may, you know, play into that too. It's, it's hard to, I'm, I'm, you know, we're not stock analysts and I haven't, you know, dug deep on this, but 
that that's my sense. Yeah. Well, you know, I I certainly would have liked to have seen more of a push to make Zuckerberg more personally responsible because ultimately, because he owns a majority, he sort of decides on these things. The FTC didn't even bother to depose him here. And so I get that desire to do that. And so I want to side with the two dissenters. But then I, I come back to thinking about the incredible legal uh, acumen and skill that Facebook would have brought to a trial in the years long thing. And you don't know what the outcome's going to be. And in the end, I think that this probably was the best of not so great options here. I think it certainly sends, I mean, it, it doesn't do as much as I'd like to see, but I think it sends the message that it does do something. It sends a message to other big tech companies as well, I think. And so I'm I'm a little conflicted on this, certainly. Um, what I'd really like to see, Jay, is mm-hmm. I'd like to see new privacy legislation from Congress. Because to me, the bigger problem, and again, this is something we talk about again and again and again, is these regulatory agencies kind of trying to do what they can without, I would argue, sufficient clear guidance through legislation. Yeah. I don't think privacy legislation has kept up with this. I think the FTC and other agencies are doing their best with outdated uh, legislation. Based on what the statutes that they exactly. have, which are not, not designed to, to yeah. deal with the challenges uh, of, of today. Exactly. Or and tomorrow. Yeah. So, I mean, what I would love to see is Congress pass privacy legislation more along the lines of the GDPR in Europe. You know, now that's not going to happen now, but, you know, maybe in, in a Buttigieg administration with a Democratic Congress, we'll get that. I don't know, but it's certainly one of my hopes. But the larger point here is it puts it puts these regulatory agencies in a really difficult position because also when you don't have that when you don't have that legislation, you open yourself up a lot more to potentially successful legal challenges. Now, even if there were legislation, sure. there all there would gonna, there's always there's yeah. always going to be legal challenges. But you're yeah. a lot more insulated from that. You have a lot more likelihood of success if there's clear legislation, which means also that probably you can negotiate a bigger, stronger settlement because of course Facebook or whoever else would know that as well. Yeah. No, you're you're you are right. You are correct on all counts. There, well, that's nice to hear. But uh, yeah. so, and, and, and you know, moving on to that other part of it, the uh, antitrust investigations. You know, I, I, do you have any? Uh, we haven't really talked about this a whole lot, but do you get a sense that it would be a good thing if we saw really kind of serious antitrust action, maybe breaking up some of these natural natural monopolies like Facebook happens to have? Well, I. I... Again, I'm a little hesitant, and and the the specifics on this investigation. I mean, there really aren't any, right? It's been it's been no, pretty vague. Just, yeah, just it's announced. Just, it's just sort of we're launching a big investigation of of big data, um, which that sounds good, I suppose. Uh, but you know, you go to what what's the basis? The the whole reason we have antitrust law. It's not to break up big companies. No. It's to protect competition. Yeah. And I think I think that's the question. Then is is there a fair competitive uh, field out there, or, or or is Facebook somehow exercising monopoly power, um, Facebook, Amazon, whoever whoever else, to keep other actors out of the market? Um, now the, that raises some other questions as to what exactly is Facebook, what exactly is Amazon, right? Um, in in some ways, you would you would think that uh, Amazon is sort of like a uh, you know, antitrust regulator dream, right? 
I mean, here it here it is. Like you can get all these different products from any different place. Uh, I mean, it would be the it, it would Amazon would seem to be like the most pro competitive uh, sort of invention that that someone could imagine. It it sort of introduces this big element of market transparency uh, that that didn't exist before or didn't exist easily. Well, you know, um, and, but th- that gets to something we talked about before: is that antitrust law traditionally has focused on more than anything else, not exclusively, but more than anything else on price. That's how we measure yeah. harm or benefit to the consumer. And when you're dealing That's with- That's how you know if someone's exercising monopoly powers, if they have power to raise the price uh, beyond a certain kind of deviation, right. That's there's a lot of math involved. Well, but. well, at least that's one. I mean, that's been the traditional standard. And, and the problem here comes in when we're dealing with Facebook, which is a free service, Right. So all of a sudden these calculations are different. What do we mean by benefit or harm to the consumer? Now, it's easy if you just look at the pricing, but when you talk about, well, how does this affect the ability to innovate of other companies? How does this affect uh, privacy, which is hard to put a price on and all these other things? And again, it's the example, I would argue, of the technology far outstripping our, our sort of legal infrastructure, which is what's causing a lot of these problems. And so I would expect that the Justice Department is going to run into a lot of the same problems uh, with with the antitrust investigation that the FTC has run into with with Facebook is that the legislation just hasn't kept pace essentially is is my view yeah and and again I think it's it's something that we need to look at you know what exactly do we do we call these these services are they yeah. uh, essentially like billboards on the side of the road right that that uh, that's that's the market is you know do you own all the billboards and therefore you can control all the the billboard advertising. Um, to me, that would be the the big, as opposed to, do you control all the, you know, do we have the most, most consumers going there? And again, those are just questions no one's ever really asked. So, I mean, whatever comes out of this, I I think it's going to be interesting because they're going to have to come up with really a better or newer, uh, uh, sort of rubric as to how to look at, uh, these, these companies and what, what exactly is it that they're doing? What service are they providing? What price are they charging? Um, Who's the consumer? All those kind of things that we haven't done. I, but again, my my sense, um, I I would tend to push back against a we need to break these companies up because they're big. Right. Yeah. And I think uh, just size alone is I would agree with you. There is no reason to break up a company. It's a matter of what is the effect on the competitive environment and on the yeah. and, and you only care about the competitive environment because we know that that's what gives consumers uh, the best products at the lowest prices and that sort of thing and most innovation. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we and, and it that. could I mean, is there something stopping someone else right. from coming up with a good Facebook competitor? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. We should do that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, you know, we have time for one more story, and uh, uh, it's uh, about the auto makers, actually, who four of them, representing around 30% of the U.S. auto market, struck a secret emissions agreement. Well, it's not secret now, but the negotiations were secret <laughs> with the state of California. The agreement calls for emission standards to rise to a fleet average of 50 miles per gallon by 2026. That is slightly less than was required by an Obama era regulation. Now, the Trump administration has called for a freeze to the Obama fuel efficiency increases, and it's also hoping to revoke California's authority to impose its own emission standards, which that was written into the Clean Air Act of 1970. 
Now, the right. automakers are Ford, Honda, VW, and BMW. They cited a need for predictability as really the key reason for the agreement, as well as a desire to lower their compliance costs. And California has, for its part, has agreed to stick by this agreement, even if Democrats win the presidency in 2020. In addition, we'll 13 states, the District of Columbia and Canada, have pledged to follow California standards, and other car makers might end up signing on to this as well. So, Jay, uh, what do you think about this agreement? Uh, yeah, look, it's, it's a voluntary agreement between uh, these, these manufacturers and the state. Uh, there's, there's nothing, I don't, I don't see a constitutional bar to it. Uh, you could say it's a commerce clause issue, but as you pointed out, there is a carve out, uh, in, uh, the, uh, the clean air act, uh, that, that allows for the California emissions standards. Um, you know, so I, I look at the, the comp car companies probably look at this as, Hey, it's a, a much like the, uh, the Facebook FTC thing. It's sort of a half a you know, half a, uh, a bite uh, or half a half a loaf. Yep. Um, uh, you know, they they get standards that are less onerous that, than they would have under the Obama standards. Uh, not as good as they would have gotten from a, a Trump federal standards. Uh, but you get the predictability, and it's also a matter of California is a huge market and and really yep. so much controls uh, emissions on on so many you know, almost anything you can imagine that emits, you know, something it, it's sort of California standards kind of become the default, uh, because of its, its outsized place in the market. So, um, I, you know, I, it, it's, it's one of these, the companies have to make their own decisions as to, to what's best. And, um, uh, yeah, you know, and you and we'll, you've mentioned we'll this before. Out, yeah, but... you've mentioned the predictability thing before, and of course, yeah. that's a big concern if you're the automaker thinking, well, is there a reasonable chance that a Democrat can win? Well, maybe we should lock in something here, you right. know. And and that's that that's again. And I know we keep on coming back no, to I it. I think I think I think perhaps maybe they're going to be a little naive, um, and it's one of those. Oh, okay, they're I you know. <laughs> wait, we got a great deal. They promised if a Democrat sure. wins, they're still not going to renege on this. Yeah. Um, uh, they will, uh, but well, uh, you know, maybe they will, and maybe they won't. That remains that remains to be seen. But uh, but the the larger point is that predictability is is just incredibly incredibly important. Right. And you know, the other point I would say is that hey, if if you can make, I could see conservatives making a case that uh, California's waiver should be taken away. And if that's the case, okay, well then propose legislation to amend the Clean Air Act to take that waiver away. But I don't think there's a there's a strong case to be able to do that through essentially administrative fiat. And you know, we've talked about no, that. I, I would agree. I would agree. Yeah, you can't do it administratively. It, it would have to be a congressional act. Yeah. Um and and I think there would be a lot of um let's put it this way, if if no one's complaining about it. Right. Right. And and if these big automakers aren't complaining uh, then, then there's not going to be any sort of political will, political force to do it. I mean, the complaints might come, uh, at, at some point, I guess, from consumers who are, are having to pay more for their cars or trucks. Um, but again, that, that, that pain is so spread out, yeah. so diffuse, yeah. you know what I mean? You don't, 
you, it just doesn't doesn't rile people up as as you might think. Right. And and quite honestly, look, if if it happens that the pain of higher car prices are hurting our auto manufacturers, then they'll reconsider uh, what kind of deals they want to make, and they'll try to cut a yeah. better deal. Yeah. So, and, and you know, I really think that in a larger sense, this is sort of my favorite kind of regulation. I like all kinds of regulation, you know that, Jay. But <laughs> you love them all, well, you but, know. Yeah. But, but this is my favorite and, and when it's possible. And here's why: I mean, this is an example of uh, the government just setting an overall goal or a standard, and just saying to an industry and applying it to an entire industry. So there are no carve outs for various companies, that kind of crony capitalist sort of thing to yeah. level the playing field and then just say, hey, you figure out how to do this. We're just going to set the overall standard. We're not going to send a bunch of regulators in and all that kind of thing. And these, you know, these rules that can be gamed and all that to me, whenever you can, I mean, I'm not for regular, despite what people might think, I'm not for regulation for its own sake. It's supposed to serve a purpose. And the other things being equal, the least intrusive form of regulation is the best, not only because it allows businesses the most freedom, but because it's also the least easy to be or the most difficult to be gained in a way. And so this, to me, is the kind of regulation we should try to have as much as possible in other areas as well. That's not getting you know, deep into the, the, the guts, but basically just saying, here's the standard, here's what you have to meet, go figure out how to do it. Yeah. So the counter the counterpoint to that argument would be, um, and again, this is I don't see there's a whole lot of political will to to, to make to have this fight. But uh, just on principle, the, the guy in Montana uh, who has to pay more for his truck uh, than the the person in L.A. because California, or I shouldn't say shouldn't say, I see what you're getting. They, they pay yep. they pay more because. Yeah. Uh, of of you know what some some regulators some state legislators in California decided, uh, and he didn't get a say in it. And emissions aren't so much a problem where he lives, uh, and he really has to drive his truck a lot because everything's really far apart. Um, so I you know that's that would be the the objection that are are you allowing one one state to have an outsized role in in creating the regulatory framework for the country? Right. Um, but I, I think look you. That that's a question that Congress should take up, yeah. and and you know did yeah. take up back in seventy eight. And if you want to change it, that's the way you have to to take it up. Yeah, and I'd say on the other side of that, you know, the argument would be, well, this is a this is a problem that's not you know uh, confined to California because it involves uh, you know uh, climate climate issues that are sort of not only national but global and so forth. But again, that's that's a whole that's a whole other issue. Certainly. Right. And so. Yes, I, I would say the to the extent that the the issue involves. Uh, Feelings of pride and and uh, um, uh, value. Uh, uh, um, I'm I'm just off today this morning. Um, um, <laughs> pride, pride and value. Uh, pride and value are good things. Absolutely. Yes. No. 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 The uh, the virtue uh, signaling. Oh, okay. Uh, that, sure. That, sure. Would, that would tend to be a more a California issue. Uh, there is a lot of, as economists would say, uh, utility gotcha. uh, for Californians and the virtue signaling that the uh, guy in Montana might not appreciate. Gotcha. And I, I, and I guess on the, on the other side, I would, would say have more limited utility for the other, <laughs> I guess I, I would country. say that the, that the, uh, the, the climate that the California folks would maybe not as much appreciate the climate denial of maybe some of these other folks who aren't willing to, to chip in to save the environment. But again, that's a whole, that's a whole other issue. So before we get into that, why don't we just, uh, stop there but we're not really stopping because of course as soon as jay and i are done recording this show we're going to do our special supporters exclusive show and this week we're going to be talking about the federal government bringing back executions as well as the 9-11 victims fund extension 
So if you're a supporter, that will be in your podcast app by the time you hear this. And of course, it's just one of the supporters only things we've got for you to find out all about all that stuff. Patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can go to politicsguys.com slash support. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that through mail at politicsguys.com. There's our Facebook page, which is there's just been all kinds of stuff. I know, Jay, if you followed last week, uh, it just a couple Crazy. of the posts blew up. Kristen, Kristen talked about why she would vote for Trump. And <laughs> exactly. Like, Kristen had the temerity to, to say she would vote for Trump. <laughs> oh, it was a, it was a heck exploded. of a discussion. Oh, my gosh. It was something. But anyway, you want to check out that and all kinds of other stuff. Facebook.com slash Politics Guys page. We are also on Twitter at Politics Guys. And hey, if you haven't already subscribed to this show, it would be a, a big help. Doesn't cost you anything. Helps us out. And also, if you can tell people about the show, that would be great as well. And, you know, leaving reviews and ratings on wherever you listen to the podcast would be helpful too. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Benji Fishman, and Andra Masker. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.